1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, the final podcast of the year. Last week week featured a year-end roundup of books in American politics. This week, I looked back to the past year on the podcast and other subfields. I start with an interview I enjoyed with Prairna Singh. Her book examines subnationalism in India. Here is a bit of her talking about the differences that exist across states in India
2: one of the reasons for choosing india um was was that it really instantiates within a single country the general point that i was really struck by in the course of writing this book which is simply where you're placed geographically has a huge has huge implications <clears throat> for your levels of well-being and so you know we we commonly think of the fact that Western Europe, you know, if you live in Western Europe, you have access to a much better welfare regime than if you are, for instance, in Central Asia or Latin America. But even neighboring countries and even within the same country, the highly divergent levels of well-being that citizens can enjoy was something that I was struck with. So just to give you a sense of what the positive and negative cases within India look like, you know, they range from the levels enjoyed by middle-income industrialized countries on the one hand, and that's the positive cases of Tamil Nadu and Kerala, to states that fare worse than the worst performers of sub-Saharan Africa. And those are the states of UP and, and, and its neighbors that I'd be happy to talk about. And the differences are stark. So, you know, in the 1950s, the state of Bihar, which I also talk about, if you lived in Bihar, you were less than half as likely to be as literate as someone who lived in Himachal Pradesh. And because of the demographic size of India, we are really looking at, at you know huge differences. So the state of Bihar, for instance, is larger than France. Um, Kerala, which is the positive case that I'll talk about, has a population larger than that of Canada. And until recently, um, if you were born in the state of Kerala, um, you were expected to live on average 15 years more as a woman, as compared to someone born in the state of UP, which has a population larger than that of Russia. So, so you know, the positive case, uh, the the differences are are actually. You yeah, know, to me, even as someone who works in India yeah. and who grew up in India, when I actually kind of realized for the first time the extent of these differences, I was I, it was actually mind-boggling. And so, to talk about the positive case a little bit, um, I have two positive cases in the book, which are both neighbouring southern states in peninsular India. And the state that is actually the epitome of the of the positive case is the state of Kerala. It's a state that a lot has been written about. People have even talked about something called the Kerala model. Um, my neighbor actually, who's probably overhearing this conversation across the world in the Watson Institute, Patrick Heller and a lot of other people have written extensively about Kerala. So in a sense, um, I was quite intimidating in intimidated entering the field of Kerala studies because a lot has been made about this, about the positive um, welfare outcomes of the state of Kerala. But no one has made the argument that this can be traced to a strong sense of Malayali identity. Most of the scholarship on Kerala has emphasized the role of a very strong social democratic party, the Communist Party of Kerala. Um, other scholars have traced um you know, it's, uh, it's high welfare outcomes to the importance of Christian missionaries and to an enlightened and benevolent monarchy during the colonial period. And so really the argument about how a sense of Malayali oneness has been the primary driver of Kerala's welfare miracle, in a sense, is a, is a very new argument.
1: Prerna's book is Subnationalism and Social Development, a Comparative Analysis of Indian States, and was published by Cambridge University Press. Next up is Mark Lynch, who came on the podcast to talk about international relations in the Middle East. Here's an excerpt from our interview.
3: Well, so there's certainly a number of, of, of players from outside uh, the Arab world that really matter. You know, so Turkey is very involved, Iran is very involved. Israel, the United States, Europe, you know, they're all involved. But I define the core of what I'm talking about as, as the Arab world. And and the reason I do that is not just because of, you know, kind of scholarly decisions, but also because the uprisings themselves were, were really, truly an Arab phenomenon where the people involved, they understood it that way. There was this, this region-wide discourse about change and then a region-wide discourse about the violence that followed and uh, and it's not just that it was conducted in the Arabic language, and it's not just that it was on shared media uh, like Al Jazeera and satellite television, but there's also there's a pretty profound identity dimension. I mean, basically, you might have something happening where you have protesters in the streets in in Greece or or London or even in Iran or Turkey. and people in the Arab world would watch that and they would be interested in it, but it was very clearly something about them. But if it's happening in Yemen or happening in Tunisia, it's us. And it doesn't matter where you were in the Arab world, you understood it that way. And that that was actually a very interesting and I think very important part of it, that all of the stuff that unfolded was very clearly part of this single, common, uh, region-wide narrative. And it was defined around what is really this new kind of pan-Arabism.
1: Mark's book is titled The New Arab Wars, Uprisings, and Anarchy in the Middle East, and was published by Public Affairs in 2016. In a year with Republicans on the Rise in Washington, I enjoyed Bob Lacey's book on political theory. Here he is from December talking about Edmund Burke and conservatism.
0: I think that a lot of conservative intellectuals um, will claim uh, that they are descendants of Burke. Um, in a way, they have to because if they're going to accept the moniker of conservatism, and uh, then they have to claim that they are the descendants of this man who's generally recognized as the father or the godfather. And I think movement conservatives, um, whether they acknowledge it or not, I don't. You know, uh, you know, privately I don't know, but they, 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 they have to pretend that they're heirs to Burke when they're clearly not. Um, and I think one of the main differences between, I mean, we could, in my book, I go into this in a lot more detail, but I think the real main difference is that conservatives today, um, are ideologues and they adhere to abstract principles that they think are unwavering, um, and an absolute and they're decidedly not pragmatic. They don't think that our political truths are provisional. They don't think that we should arrive at political solutions by drawing on concrete experience. Um, Whereas Edmund Burke, and I think thinkers who follow in his uh in his path, uh believe that, you know, politics is not about adhering to abstract principles or creating theoretical blueprints to which you adhere slavishly. And so, you know, I think that's, that, that's the big difference. Now, movement conservatives, uh, I think, in that sense, have proven themselves to be radical. And as I argue in the book, and I think other critics have made similar claims, that movement conservatives actually have more in common with the Jacobins, right? The French revolutionaries. Uh, the, the, those people whom Burke criticized um, so severely than they do with Burke himself, because they're just as inflexible and uncompromising as the Jacobins. Uh, and they're willing to to even adopt, adopt a, a scorched earth policy, right, to to realize their uh, their their utopian dreams, if you will. Um, and that, to me, just goes completely against what Edmund Burke thought was about and what he was calling for. And that's why in a strange way that today's liberals or sort of moderate liberals or, or those who we call liberals have more in common with Burke. And perhaps they're the true descendants of Burke, not today's conservatives.
1: Bob's book is pragmatic conservatism. Palgrave Macmillan published the book this year. And finally, Deepa Iyer came on the podcast to talk about social movements and South Asian American politics. Here she is talking about her book.
4: I'm not sure about the election campaign in particular. I think that that will remain to be seen. Um, I think that. In in generally speaking, there are two movements that I also reference in the book that I think are very complementary in in terms of the organizing and the political power building um, that we see in Muslim Arab, South Asian communities. And these are the movement for black lives and the movement that's being led by undocumented youth. And I talk in the book about how both of these movements have been um, ways for our own communities to learn from and also to participate and engage in. So, for example, with the movement for black lives. South Asian communities, Arab communities in particular, over the past year since Ferguson, have been talking about what it means to stand in solidarity. And that includes, for example, addressing anti-Black racism in our own communities. And it also includes uh, making some of the linkages between the the type of oppression that we see with police brutality targeting uh, Black communities in particular, and the war on terror, which includes sort of the surveillance state. So how do we make some of those links between our causes so that we can create a a more informed base um, that is working towards policy changes? So that's just one example. Um, I do think from the election standpoint, thanks again to the Movement for Black Lives. um, You know, I think the candidates are being pushed to actually speak on the issues that matter to our communities, um, that they need to be addressing issues such as profiling, um, police brutality, criminal justice, uh, civil rights, that they need to be doing that um, in in a more concerted manner and in a more prompt manner.
1: Deepa's book, with my favorite cover of the year, is We Too Sing America, published by The New Press. I hope you enjoyed the podcast in 2016 and come back in 2017 for more. Remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and share on social media.